of May in the year of our salvation, 2007, and you're back with Father Z for another Bazanova podcast. Welcome as our guest today, the great North African Doctor of Grace, the Bishop of Hippo, St. Augustine, who died in 430 AD. I'll also talk about active participation and reception of Holy Communion on the part of public figures, especially politicians, who, though they say they're Catholic, concretely and actively work to promote abortion. The Internationales in Salmos, or Augustine's collection of commentaries on the Psalms, is a massively comprehensive project. It's bigger than all the other patristic commentaries on the Psalms put together, and it took him over 30 years to assemble this, and he would even set aside other uh, theological works and writings uh, for the sake of this collection. Now, the Psalms were of primary importance for Augustine, and we can even, as a matter of fact, say that the Confessions are almost like an extension of a Psalter, because he comments so much in Psalms and uses them so much, and they were so important to him that uh, they played a massive part in his conversion and his preparation for baptism in 386, uh, when he really began to discover their force, and at the end of his life he had them copied out in large letters and posted by his deathbed so that he could see them with his darkening and weakening eyes. Augustine was basically compelled to comment on them, both because he felt their force and they were also uh, so very commonly used in the Christian life in the liturgy. Uh, and so he would even say about the Psalms, I feed you with what nourishes me. I offer you what I myself live on. So you can see that the Psalms were very important to Augustine himself for his own spiritual life. Now, the title of the big collection, which involves works of different genres, the Enerationes and Psalmos. Enerationes was a word coined by Erasmus of Rotterdam in the 16th century, and it really kind of stuck. Uh, and these are mainly, these commentaries are mainly sermons, but they do also have other genres uh, mixed in with them, and there are all sorts of different labels we can apply to the different pieces, including expositio and sermo and tractatus and commentum and so forth. Now, 
some of these uh, pieces are exegetical, that is, they are like interpretive notes, but others uh, in the collection are really polished sermons that were copied down by stenographers as Augustine pronounced them. Remember, he had these swift writing stenographers everywhere he went, and when he would give sermons, they would sit there and write it down, and they were incredibly accurate. And, of course, uh, because uh, these are sermons, right, the liturgy is the context for many of these commentaries on the Psalms. But uh, most of them were actually given outside uh, Hippo when Augustine was out on the road. And uh, so they weren't, you know, basically on the big major feasts. They were out on other occasions when Augustine was preaching somewhere. Now, it could be argued, really, that because the uh, Enerationes and Salmos uh, embrace such a long period of, of Augustine's life, like about 30 years, and also embraces so very many topics, um, we can really argue that this is one of Augustine's major uh, accomplishments in his life, you know, together with works like the Confessions and the City of God and De Trinitate. Uh, his goal in commenting on the Psalms, of course, was to help people grasp more deeply uh, their content. Uh, as a matter of fact, in the introduction to uh, one of his commentaries on the Psalm, I think it's Psalm 18, he talks about how some uh, birds might, you know, learn how to parrot uh, speech, human speech, but even when they do talk like a person, they don't grasp what they're saying. And so we, uh, human beings, have to do better than these birds. We have to understand them. Uh, in Psalm, his commentary in Psalm 48, he talks about the verse, sing psalms to God with understanding. And so when he digs into the psalms, just as he digs into any uh, verse of scripture, it's all part of uh, Augustine's desire to understand the faith that we embrace, the intellectus fidei. We have to understand it, and we come to that especially through an understanding of scriptures. Now, the selection I'm going to be giving you from uh, Augustine's commentary on Psalm 148 uh, is actually in the Office of Readings. It's the second reading in the Office of Readings for today. Um, I'm going to actually give you a little longer section than what we have in the office because it gets into some really interesting themes. Uh, but in this, uh, when you listen to this, there are a few things that you might pay attention to. Uh, for example, uh, how Augustine underscores the way that this life is actually a rehearsal for the life to come. The habits we establish here bring us to our reward in the next life. And Augustine reminds us that our prayer to God must embrace the entirety of our life, our whole being, all of our experience. And this, of course, uh, includes both joys and sufferings. Now, so right now, in this life, our experience is characterized by sufferings and difficulties and obstacles and sorrows and so forth. But in the life of co to come, our experience will be praise and joy. And then Augustine uh, connects this reality to the liturgical year and how the liturgical year mir uh, mirrors our experience. Uh, we, just as we have times of struggling now in this life and then happiness later, in the liturgy we have times of penance and then times of celebration. So penance always precedes the feast. 
so that the feast can actually be more joyous. Now, and then Augustine moves into a, a deeper explanation of the Alleluia, which for us prefigures our future life in heaven. And so there's also a communal dimension to the Alleluia. It means praise of God, which goes just beyond the individual's private devotions or our, our private relationship with God, you know, kind of a me and Jesus attitude. There has to be an outward expression of this, which embraces everyone else, too. We say this to each other. We invite each other to this. But one of the ways we have to do this, of course, is through our outward actions. Our outward actions have to reflect our inward disposition. And here Augustine uh, talks about the hierarchy that is within us, and he uses as an example uh, the empire itself. There's an emperor who guides provinces, and then, of course, uh, when the emperor commands, uh, the provinces obey. Well, so the head commands the body, and the body obeys. Well, so our minds command, our minds and wills command us, our person, and then we obey. So if we have a good emperor, good things happen. If we have a bad emperor, bad things happen. Well, similarly, in our own hearts, if we enthrone Christ, good things happen. If we enthrone the devil, bad things happen happen. And this, uh, later on, Augustine, in the same uh, work, in the same commentary on Psalm 148, will then talk about the structures of heaven and the hierarchies of heaven. But let's go on and listen to some of Psalm 100, Augustine's commentary in Psalm 148. Generationibus Sancti Augustini Episcopi in Salmos. Meditatio presentis vitae nostre in laude Dei esse debet, quia exultatio sempiterna future nostre vitae laus Dei erit. Et nemo potest idonius fieri future vitae, qui non se ad illam modo exercuerit. Modo ergo laudamus Deum, seret rogamus Deum. Laus nostra letitiam. Our thoughts in this present life ought to be centered on the praise of God, because to praise God will be our everlasting joy in the life to come, and no one will be fit for that future life unless he or she is well practiced in the art of praising God now. In our present state, we praise Him but we also make our requests to him, and, though our praise is joyful, our petitions are accompanied by groans. We have been promised a happiness we do not yet possess, and therefore, while we rejoice in hope because he who promised is trustworthy, we also groan with longing because we do not yet see the fulfillment our good lies in persevering in our desire until what we are promised has come. Then groaning will pass away, and praise alone will take its place. Since we must live through these two periods of time, 
the present era with its temptations and all life's troubles, and the future life with its freedoms from danger and its perpetual joy, the Church has likewise appointed for us a celebration of two distinct periods, the time before Easter and the time after it. The time before Easter represents the afflictions we experience in our present life, but the time after Easter, which we are keeping now, is a sign of the beatitude in which we shall live hereafter. So, you see, what we celebrate before Easter corresponds to our actual experience, but in our celebrations after Easter we signify realities not yet within our grasp. This is why in the former period we train ourselves with fasting and prayer, but in this post-Easter season the regime of fasting is relaxed and we devote ourselves to praise. Accordingly, we sing Alleluia, which, as you know, means in our language, Praise the Lord. The earlier period represented the time before the Lord's resurrection, and the period we are in now is the time after his resurrection. This latter period is a sign of the future life which we do not hold as yet, but what we celebrate through signs after the resurrection of the Lord we shall hold in reality after our own resurrection. In the person of our head, both phases were prefigured, and both were demonstrated in fact. His passion manifested to us the conditions of our present life, in which we are bound to labor and suffer hardship, and eventually die. But the resurrection and glorification of the Lord manifest to us the life we shall receive when he comes again to mete out just retribution to all an evil fate to evil people, and good things to the good. It is true that for the time being all wicked people can sing Alleluia with us, but if they persist in their malice, this song proper to our future life will be no more than a sound on their lips. They cannot win that life itself, the life celebrated in signs now, but waiting for us in reality because they have refused to orient themselves toward it now, before the time, and to hold fast to it before it comes. With this in mind, brothers and sisters, we exhort you to praise God, and it is this exhortation that we all address to each other when we say, Alleluia. Praise the Lord, you say to someone, and he says the same to you. Thus, when people are all saying it to each other, they are all doing exactly what they are inviting one another to do. But you must praise him with the whole of yourselves. Not only must your tongue and your voice praise God, but your conscience must praise him too, and your life and your deeds. What I mean is this. Now, while we are gathered in church, we praise God. But when each of you goes off home, it looks as if you cease to praise him. But let each one of you not cease to live a good life, and then he or she will be praising God all the time. You only stop praising God when you swerve from just conduct and from what pleases him. If you never turn aside from what is right, your tongue is silent, but your life is shouting 
and God's ears are attuned to your heart. Just as our ears are sensitive to our voices, so are God's ears sensitive to our thoughts. But it is impossible for anyone who entertains good thoughts to commit bad deeds, for deeds proceed from thoughts. A person cannot do anything or move his limbs to perform any action unless his thoughts first issue the order. Think how it is in the Roman Empire. Any order issued by the emperor proceeds from inside his palace and travels through the empire so that you see its effects throughout the provinces. What a flurry of activity follows one command from an emperor sitting still indoors. He moves only his lips when he speaks, but a whole province is astir when the order is carried out. Similarly, there is an emperor within each of us enthroned in our hearts. If he is good and issues good commands, good deeds follow. If he is bad and gives bad commands, bad deeds are the result. If Christ is enthroned there, what else but good can he command? If the devil is in possession, what can he order but bad deeds? God has willed that it shall be left to your own decision whether to prepare a place for God or one for the devil. When you have prepared it, whoever takes possession will give the orders. So then, brothers and sisters, do not confine your attention to the sound you make. When you praise God, praise him with your whole selves. Let your voice sing, let your life sing, let your actions sing. Even though you are still beset with groaning troubles and temptation, you must hope that all these will pass and that the day will dawn when we shall praise God without fainting or failing. Si bonus bona jubet, bona fiunt. Si malus mala jubet, mala fiunt. Cum ibicere Christus, quid potest iubere nisi bona? Cum possidet diabolus, quid potest iubere nisi mala? In tuo autem arbitrio Deus esse voluit, cui pares locum Deo an diabolo? Cum paraveris qui possidebit ipse imperabit? Ergo, fratres, non tantum ad sonum attendite, Cum laudatis Deum toti laudate, cantet vox, cantet vita, cantent facta. Et si est ad hoc gemitus, tribulatio, tentatio, sperate transitura omnia, et illum venturum diem quosine defectu laudabimus.
That was part of Augustine's commentary on Psalm 148, the first couple paragraphs of that wonderful commentary. And I'd like to return to a notion in there uh, of the Bishop of Hippo. He, he says that our whole selves must sing, our actions must sing too. But isn't it true that our outward expressions, our uh, song in action, as it were, flows out from an interior disposition. This is what Augustine is talking about with the emperor, that it is in our hearts. Of course, there's a, a, a symbiosis between the emperor and us, right? But But look how Augustine puts Christ so central to our mind and will. He is everything in our mind and will. And to the extent that we have him there in the center, to that extent is what uh, what we do is good. You remember that beautiful phrase of Augustine that, uh, that Christ crowns his own merits in us. Everything that is good comes from him. All good initiatives, everything that is good. And then when we cooperate with him, then he makes our hands strong enough to grasp onto what he's given. And so the good things that we do are simultaneously ours and his at the same time. Christ builds on us. He doesn't blot us out. He doesn't eliminate us. Uh, we become actually more who we really are the more we give ourselves over to Christ, which is exactly the opposite of what happens when we choose to go away from Christ. We become less of who we are. And when we actually put uh, the enemy of our soul in that place, then we it is almost as if we are you know, being zeroed out, right? Uh, evil is a, is the absence, uh, the total absence of good in being, and basically that's what we begin to give us ourselves over to. But this, um, this, all of this is also important for our liturgical participation, which uh, Augustine also talks about in this. Way. He talks about church, right? When you're in church, it's like you praise God. Well, that's fine. But remember that we can be in church and we can be singing and doing things and so forth, but have our minds a million miles away on something that's completely extraneous to what we are actually supposed to be doing in the liturgical action in church. Similarly, we can have real evil in our hearts, even in church, even as we sing that Alleluia, which is praise the Lord. What an incredible contrast that is what a horrible conflict it is and so it's so important for us especially at that moment when we dare to approach uh, the Lord in Holy Communion to have Christ enthroned in our hearts and not ourselves or the enemy of our soul we can't be in conflict with the real interior meaning of the action, which is uh, the sacred liturgy. Remember that Christ is always the one acting, and our voices are taken by him, our actions, our gestures are used by him. He is the one truly in action. And we have the person of the priest as the head of the church, who is like Christ, the altar Christus, and we have the congregation, who is Christ's body. All of these things have to be in harmony in the liturgical action. And it begins from within our own individual disposi disposition.
Se você disser que eu desafio amor Saiba que isto em mim provoca imensa dor Só privilegiados têm ouvido igual ao seu Eu possuo apenas o que Deus me deu Se você insiste em classificar The Holy Father has traveled to Brazil, where he will inaugurate a meeting of all the Latin American bishops' conferences and, uh, actually yesterday, uh, canonize a new saint. And on the airplane to Brazil, the Holy Father made uh, a comment to a reporter that set off a whole dust-up in the press. It's all about abortion and excommunication. Now, the the uh, reporter, Marco Politi, he's kind of the slithery Vaticanist of uh, an Italian paper called La Repubblica, asked if the Pope shared or supported the excommunication, as he put it, of Mexican Catholic pro-abortion politicians. Well, actually, there wasn't in Mexico any declared excommunication, of course, but uh, those politicians had been excluded from Holy Communion by their own actions because of their concrete support for uh, promoting and uh, supporting in a concrete way pro-abortion legislation. They wanted to decriminalize abortion in the area around Mexico City. Now, in answer to this, uh, the Pope said, that there were consequences for supporting pro-abortion laws. And right now, what I'm going to do is leave aside the, ex the issue of excommunication, just exactly how much involvement you must have in order to incur an excommunication for actively procuring an abortion. And there's a lot of debate about that, just exactly what level of your involvement has to be in order to incur the excommunication. But you see, when there's a, a, an issue of a public figure who says that he or she is Catholic and then actively, publicly works in favor of abortion to advance it and not to restrict it, to defend it when it is uh, up for review, well, that person creates a public wound in the church, regardless of his or her interior disposition. They create a public wound. When public figures do this, saying that they're Catholic and then go directly against Catholic teaching in a very public way, they create a public wound in the church. And therefore, receiving communion, which among other things is an outward public declaration of communion with all that the church teaches and the church's practices is a direct conflict with their outward deeds. You see, they profess they're Catholic and therefore they believe what the church says and does. Reception of communion is a public act and a declaration of acceptance of what the church teaches and does. And then they turn around and publicly act in a way that's contrary to those things. You see, they create a wound. There's a conflict between what they say they are and then what they do. 
But this isn't just like if, you know, Joe Sixpack down the street does something. When it's a public figure, it becomes a matter of great importance to the church as a whole and society as a whole. So Catholics who work actively and publicly for abortion, its advancement or its protection, may not receive Holy Communion. Now this is a very different issue from that of the you know the formal excommunication business, of course, but it's a very serious thing. Public figures may not claim to separate their interior belief from their outward actions in the public square. And if they make that claim and then act, you know, in contrary to the church, then the church's pastors have a responsibility to bring that person back and also heal the wound, regardless of whether they can actually bring that person back. In other words, to heal the wound, sometimes they have to cut the member off. And, of course, you know, excommunication is one of the remedies for a person who strays away and creates a sickness or a wound in the church. But another way is simply to deny them Holy Communion and to tell them you may not approach Holy Communion, you may not receive it, and then if they come anyway, pastors of souls have the obligation to deny that public figure Holy Communion, if the scandal is great enough, of course, until such time as they make public redress for the public wound they caused to the faithful. Quem acreditou no amor, no sorriso, na flor, então sonhou, sonhou e perdeu a paz. After that little rant, I think I'll take a soothing walk and find myself some Campari and soda. I hope you'll come back and visit us again. Come and listen to other podcasts and participate at the What Does the Prayer Really Say blog, WDTPRS.com, Whiskey Delta Tango Papa Romeo Sierra.com. God bless you and yours. Descrente de um dia feliz Quem chorou, chorou E tanto que seu pranto já secou Quem depois voltou Ao amor, ao sorriso e à flor Então todo encontro